Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary. I'm Paul's Letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans 15, 1 through 13. And this is one of those unfortunate places where there should have never been a chapter division, because this is the final section in Paul's discussion of the weak and the strong that was carried on in chapter 14. And so a chapter break here makes us think we're starting a new topic or a new subject or causes us to stop at the end of chapter 14. And then we forget or miss the connection clearly with what's proceeded in chapter 14. And so here in chapter 15, 1 through 13, we are wrapping up Paul's discussion of the weak and the strong. And remember, the strong are those who feel that they they are free in Christ. They have no scruples about eating meat wherever it comes from. They don't feel any need to you know, have a ritual calendar that has values one day or the other. Uh, and the weak are those that, and they, they're not so sure, they're squeamish about eating meat. They're going to only eat vegetables for the sake of their conscience. Uh, they value one day over the other. They keep the calendar. And these two groups are at odds with each other. And in our last recording, we focused on Paul's instructions where he spoke primarily to the strong, but in such a way that it instructed the weak. Well, here in 15, 1 through 13, he has really two more chunks that he wants to say. So 15, 1 through 6, and 15, 7 through 13, two distinct parts to this section that we're going to look at in this recording. And in 15, 1 through 6, Paul gives his final instructions, again, focused on the strong, and it includes really his ultimate purpose for these instructions. And then in 15, 7 through 13, he gives his final appeal to welcome one another in the Messiah. And both these sections, 1 through 6 and 7 through 13, are very Christological. And what I mean by that is they are rooted in Jesus and what he has done for us. And so his final instruction to the strong in 15, 1 through 6 has Jesus as the pattern. Do this, he says, because Jesus did this. And then in 15, 7 through 13, really, again, it's the same thing. The pattern is Jesus. Welcome one another because Jesus welcomed you. And so Jesus really becomes the pattern for what Paul is calling the church there in Rome to do. And one other little note by way of introduction, and that is both these uh, paragraphs, 1 through 6, 7 through 13, end with sort of a prayer wish at the end. Now may the God who, now may the God who. And so both of them have a command, call attention to the pattern of Jesus, and end with a prayer. So let's look at the details of 15, 1 through 6. And the first thing, just to help us track what he's getting at here, the main point is this. Rather than pleasing yourself, seek your neighbor's good like Jesus did. If we had to summarize 1 through 6 in a nutshell, that's what it's about. Rather than pleasing yourself, seek what's good for your neighbor like Jesus did. Here's the way Paul says it. Paul says, now, we who are strong. First thing to note there is, again, Paul includes himself in the strong. He puts himself in that category, somebody who can eat meat or not eat meat, somebody who can keep the Sabbath or not keep the Sabbath. He is free in regards to these things. And so now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And when he says we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, bearing with in this 
case does not mean just put up with, just tolerate it. Well, they're weak. Hopefully they'll outgrow it someday. No, that's not quite what he means. When he says bear the weaknesses of those without strength, he means help carry, help shoulder the load. You see this, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul really says something very similar, and he calls us to help shoulder the load or carry the burdens of those who are struggling. And so we ought to bear the weaknesses. And based on what he said in chapter 14, we really have a pretty good idea of what he means. It's restrain ourselves. It, we like meat? Great. But if we're going to invite over somebody who, who struggles with meat from that camp that's more the weak camp, guess what? Don't serve meat. Serve veggies only, right? Because we're going to, we're going to, help carry this weakness with them. We're going to bear this. We're going to feel it within ourselves because we're all the body of Christ together. That's really what he's getting at. And we, we've seen that there in chapter 14, where it's like, no, you restrain yourself. You don't please yourself. You don't serve yourself. And that's what he says here. So we bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and we don't just please ourselves. We don't do what we want to do. We don't do what feels good to us. Um, we don't just serve ourselves. We are sensitive to and compassionate towards those without strength, those who are struggling with these issues and haven't worked out the full implications of their freedom in Christ. So bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. Verse 2, he says, each of us, catch this, is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And so in this bearing the weakness, Paul also describes that here in verse 2 as, Pleasing his neighbor, doing, in other words, what's best for them, doing what's good for them. If they don't, if they're not comfortable eating meat, don't serve meat. When you go to their house, don't expect meat. Don't make a big deal out of it, right? That's the idea. That's the force of this and their concrete situation. We do what's good for them. We please them for his good, to his edification. And don't lose uh, sight of how important the good what has been really throughout this whole practical section of Romans. Beginning clear back in chapter 12 all the way up till now, Paul has emphasized the idea of do what's good, do what's good, do what's good ever since 12, 1 and 2. And so in 12, 9, do what's good. 12, 21, the good shows up there. 13, 3 through 4, that the government is there to reward the good and punish those who don't do good. And throughout chapter 14, about this discussion of the weak and the strong, we see mention of the good. So don't lose that. that this is Paul's idea. We do what's good uh, in the eyes of society. We do what's good for other people. We are people who known to, uh, are known as having a good way of life. And we consider the good of other people. And so he says, each of us ought to please his neighbor for his good. And he means by that, towards their edification, to help build them up, to help them be strong in, in Christ and growing in Christ. And so we're, we're going to do um, what's in their best interest for their edification. We're not going to destroy them. We're not going to tear them down because we have a difference of opinion about these things, right? And so we're going to serve them for their good. And Paul points again here in verse 3 then to the example of Jesus. The pattern for all of this is Jesus. Notice what he says. For even Christ did not please himself. Christ didn't do what was comfortable for him, what was pleasant for him, and what was easy for him. Christ didn't please himself, 
But as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. The the ridicule of those who ridicule you have fallen on me. Like Jesus took on the shame and the ridicule of other people for our sake. And that's a quote from Psalm chapter 69, Psalm 69. And that Psalm is a Psalm of David and it's about the righteous suffering and and it, uh, certain parts of it are, seem clearly messianic or were adopted by the early church as saying, yes, this was true of King David, but the greater king, uh, David's son, the Messiah, he fulfilled this and lived this out in even a greater sort of way. And so here, this now is applied to Jesus as a pattern for us, that Jesus didn't please himself, that he suffered shame, he suffered ridicule, and he suffered crucifixion for the sake of others because he didn't please himself, he served others. And Paul then clarifies just really a general statement in verse 4 about the Old Testament scriptures. He says this, he says, for whatever was written in earlier times, he's just quoted the Old Testament, a passage out of Psalms, so whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. And so we we read the scriptures, in Paul's case, the Old Testament scriptures, for our instruction. It was written about them for us. It was written to them but also for us, right? That's the way the scriptures work. We're not the original audience, but we reap the benefit of learning from them. And so it was written uh, in earlier times, but it was written for our instruction so that through perseverance, through endurance and standing firm and staying the course, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so a general statement there in verse four uh, about the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul has quoted this passage based on this principle about the Old Testament scriptures being written for our instruction. He's like, this is actually instructive to us. Uh, This is the way of the Messiah. This is also the way of the Messiah's people. This was the way of King David. And so we learn from this. This is is the pattern, right? And so this was written for our instruction. And then verse 5, you get the prayer. And the prayer is um, really the outcome Uh, of all of this, this is what he wants God to do. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, notice the connection with verse 4, right? So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, now may the God who gives such perseverance and who gives that encouragement, may that God grant you to be of the same mind with one another, right? Again, in context, we know same mind does not mean agree with one another. They don't agree. That's not what same mind means. What same mind means is that we have the same heart, that we're unified in purpose, that we're, we're submitted to God, and we recognize, you know what? We are going to be harmonious. We are going to work together and cooperate with each other for God's sake. And so have the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Not agree with but cooperate with, care for, think of others as more important than yourself. That's the mind he wants us to have. Verse 6, here's the ultimate outcome. Here's the goal. So that, catch this, so that with one purpose and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul thinks about the believers in Rome, and we'll learn in chapter 16, that there is at least three, four, maybe five different house churches, perhaps more, but uh, there's several house churches mentioned clearly in the greetings in Romans 16. Um, And so multiple house churches, they are presumably divided along these lines of 
those who eat meat, those who don't, those who keep a calendar, those who don't, and they're not associating with one another. Paul is calling them to learn to eat together, right? And so, uh, and do what's, you know, in best for each other, so that with one purpose and one voice, they can glorify God together. And this reminds us that all of that great theology way back in Romans 3 and 4 and 5, 6, 7, and 8, and even through 9, 10, 11, all of that great theology has as its climactic moment this line right here in Romans chapter 15, verse 6, where it's like, I've said all of that theology to build up to this so that you guys can actually work together, cooperate together, live together, and glorify God together with one voice. That's Paul's heart. That's Paul's goal. Now, when you look at the theology of the earlier chapters, you realize it's really working towards this. Like justification by faith in chapter 3, well, that's for Jew and Gentile alike. That's for out-and-out pagan, decent person alike, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and so we all come to God the same way in and through the Messiah apart from the Torah. We see in chapter chapters 6, 7, and 8, that uh, this freedom that we have both from the penalty of sin and also the power of sin is applied to all of us through the Spirit. And so God is the one who's at work among us to make all of this happen. He's the one who's liberated us from sin and death. And thus, there should be this immense gratitude towards God and this immense immense humility towards each other so that we can be of the same mind with one another and glorify God with one voice. And so to make that possible, we need to change how we interact with each other. And thus, in Romans 15, 7, Paul turns to his final appeal. He really restates the same appeal that he gave in 14, 1, and that appeal is welcome one another. He says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. And we noted there in 14.1 that the translation accept is just, I think, a little anemic. This is welcome. This is received. This isn't just put up with each other. Okay, you have your view. I have mine. This is, no, you've got to learn to receive one another. You've got to learn to interact with one another. We've seen that that includes, you've got to learn to eat together. And that means you're going to have to be willing to give up some things. You're going to have to be willing to change your attitude towards each other. So welcome one another, eat together, spend time together. That's the idea. And you should do this, he says, just as, which means because, but also means after the same pattern as Jesus Christ who accepted us. Like we're going to welcome each other because Christ welcomed us. Us. And as we noted up above, right, the instructions in 1 through 6 are grounded in the pattern of Christ, and this welcoming each other is grounded in the example and the pattern of Jesus as well. And this reminds us that for Paul, the cross isn't something that just gives us forgiveness. The cross is supposed to be a pattern for our life, that our lives are supposed to be Christ-centered and cross-shaped for our whole life. And so, for Paul, in all of his letters, you see this over and over and over again. For example, in Philippians 2, when he deals with the relationships amongst the Christians there, well, the cross is the pattern, right? That we should have the same mind as Christ, and Christ emptied himself and laid down his life. When he deals with marriage in Ephesians 5, well, guess what? The cross is the pattern for the relationship between husband and wife, and husbands are supposed to love their wives like 
Christ of the church and gave himself up for it. It's cross-shaped. When Paul deals with his own ministry and whether or not he should take money and pay for his ministry, the cross shapes his understanding of that. And so for Paul, the cross and Jesus was a pattern to be followed as well as a means of our forgiveness. And we, like Paul, really need to reflect on the cross and gaze upon the cross until we can see how it shapes the whole of our life, our job, our marriage, our churches, our social life, our community life, our neighborhood life should all be shaped by the cross. For Paul, that's the way the cross worked. We see that here in Romans chapter 15. And so welcome one another just as Christ accepted or welcomed us for the glory of God. Now in verse 8, in the first half of verse 9, Paul takes this idea of Christ welcoming us and he applies it to Jews and Gentiles. And this is the only place in this whole discussion about the weak and the strong where we get the explicit mention of the Jews and the Gentiles. He says this about the Jews. He says that Christ became a servant, and Lord himself became a servant to the circumcision, that's the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And so Christ came, he lowered himself, and he served the Jews in order to confirm the very promises that were given to the fathers. And so that long story of the Old Testament and the promise as it was carried forward through that story reaches its culmination point in Jesus and thus is confirmed and fulfilled in and through the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus himself. And so Jesus came as a servant on their behalf to fulfill those promises. And verse 9, and he also became a servant for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Or a better way to phrase what Paul says there is became a servant for the Gentiles on behalf of his mercy to glorify God. We lose, because of the translation, I'm not really sure why they freed it up the way they did, we lose the parallel with the circumcision. So he became a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. He became a servant for the Gentiles on behalf of his mercy to glorify God. And so uh, on behalf of the truth of God, on behalf of his mercy, to confirm the promises, to glorify God. This is, this is just a way of parallel stating what Paul is saying between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the translation kind of masks that parallel wording that we get here. And so for the Jews, it was on behalf of the truth of God because he made all these promises to them. For the Gentiles, it was purely on behalf of his mercy because they had no expectation of this. They weren't even part of the Old Testament story unless they managed to uh, come into it through the witness of the Jews. And so Christ has become a servant for both Jews and Gentiles alike. That's his point. Now what Paul does in the second half of verse 9 and through verse 12 is he just strings together a handful of Old Testament quotes to emphasize once again that bringing the Gentiles into this and having one new people of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles and thus clean and unclean distinctions no longer apply, that was always God's plan. And so he strings together a handful of Old Testament quotes to make that point. The first quote is from Psalm 1849, and it reads, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praises to your name. And so the Gentiles, the nations. The second quote in verse 10 is from Deuteronomy 32, 43, and it says, 
rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And so you Gentiles coming in with his people, Israel, and all of you rejoice together in what God is doing. The third quote in verse 11 is from Psalm 117, verse 11, and it reads, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. So all the peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. And then verse 12, the fourth quote is from Isaiah 11:10, and it says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him the Gentiles will hope. And we know that root of Jesse is a messianic messianic promise of the ultimate king, the ultimate seed or offspring of Jesse. Jesse was David, King David's dad. So there's going to come a root from Jesse. In other words, that there's going to become someone in the line of David, and he's going to arise and rule over the Gentiles, and all the Gentiles will hope in him. And so the promise of the coming Messiah who's going to bring the Gentiles into the family and the Gentiles are going to find their hope in him. And so with that, Paul has reemphasized this point that this was always God's plan. And so, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's led to this ambiguity, this tension. And we've got some confusion in the church and we've got some tension and division because of that confusion between strong and weak, Jew, Gentile, blurred lines between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul wants to reemphasize, but this was the way God always intended it to be. This was going to be the culmination of the story as told in the Old Testament. And so with that, in verse 13, Paul then offers another prayer wish, another prayer report. And he says, now may, just as he did in verse 6, right? Verse 6 was, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Well, here in verse 13, now may the God of hope, right? In him, all the Gentiles will hope. So now may the God of hope, the God who gives that hope, the God who provides that hope, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And so may you, O Romans, may you, O church, may you, O Christians, be filled with all joy and peace in believing, believing in the Messiah, believing in God's promises, believing in what God is doing, right? May you be filled with all joy and peace so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that you will, notice that, abound, overflow with hope. And so hope becomes the bedrock foundation of and the expression of um, our faith in Jesus. So notice that there in verse 13, what strikes me is hope, joy, peace. Man, what positive virtues, what positive experiences those all refer to for us as God's people. And he's praying that God would provide all these things for us as we believe in Jesus Christ. All right, this section from 14.1 through 15.13 is really instructive to us, but those instructions can get lost because the details of their culture, right? And so as we're wrestling with Scripture, that's one of the things that's always a challenge for us is we aren't the original audience. And so it doesn't always address uh, concerns our way. It addresses them their way. And then we need to hear that, hear that wisely and well so that we can figure out what to do with them in our cultural context. And you hear that very clearly in this section. This is dealing with uh, eating meat. We don't usually wrestle with that. Like Christians, uh, at least in my cultural context, rarely ever struggle with eating meat. Now, I understand in certain cultural contexts, that's the case, that Christians still wrestle with that very specific issue. But 
A lot of us don't wrestle with that specific issue. It's dealing with ritual calendar. Should we have a ritual calendar? Should we keep maybe some of the ritual calendar of the Jewish calendar or not, right, for, for them? That's just not something most of us have wrestled with. Um, and so the specifics of the teaching to Paul's original audience can sometimes hinder us from figuring out what are the similar specifics for the teaching in our cultural context, and that requires us to stop, think carefully, and wrestle with how do we move from their world to our world responsibly. But this is a place where we need to really do that well, because the teaching here has some immense instructive value to us. And right, Paul's primary heart is for Christians who aren't interacting with each other and who are standoffish towards each other and who are even criticizing and looking down on each other to learn how to not just put up with each other and you know consider each other brothers in Christ from a distance, but to learn how to actually eat together, which would have been a massive sociological hurdle for them to overcome in their differences. And so he's given instructions to that end so that with one voice they can glorify God together. So the question in this this section here is really, as Ben Witherington puts it in his commentary, is this. How can we achieve unity, practical, real, down-to-earth unity, without insisting on uniformity? For the original audience here, how can they actually have harmony together without insisting that everyone agrees on these issues and thinks the exact same way? Unity without insisting on uniformity. And the same is true in our cultural context. Um, Maybe this is a pretty moderate, not an extreme example. What about a drink of alcohol? I know plenty of Christians for whom a drink of alcohol is a problem. They don't permit it. They don't allow it. And I know some who would find it very difficult to actually want to, you know, go to a church where the, the preacher and the elders might occasionally drink a beer. On the flip side, I know plenty of Christians, including elders and preachers, who have no problem occasionally drinking a beer. Would they be willing to give up drinking the beer in the presence of some who are like, uh, I just can't ever think of doing that in a good conscience, right? Now, that may not be a super tension-filled um, example for us, but in certain contexts it could be. We have to wrestle with that. Um, th- there are different approaches to parenting among Christians across cultural lines. Like, there are plenty of cultural conventions that uh, influence our parenting, and one culture to another would look at maybe American parenting with like, wow, you allow your kids to? And then Christian parents might look at certain way Christians raise their kid in another culture like, wow, you guys are oppressive and harsh, right? So how are we going to get along? There's, There's all sorts of things where there's gray areas where there's going to be differences and we're going to have difference of opinions and some of those differences are going to be pretty sharp and we're going to feel them pretty strongly. Um, some are going to have a really hard time with Christians having uh, you know, uh, having certain levels of wealth and driving certain things and some are going to think, no, we should all do that. Right? Like, how are we going to handle that? Unity without insisting on uniformity. Even styles of church services and how we do church. Um, uh, or Luke Timothy Johnson in his commentary on this section describes it as th- this, the implications of this has to do with multiculturalism. 
He says, Paul's engaging here in the issue of multiculturalism. How can people share a certain unifying community identity without having to completely lose their particular cultural heritage, right? That's true. As you bring Christians from different cultural backgrounds and different ethnicities and different assumptions about that, how can we all get together? I remember, for example, sitting in my office at the Bible college, um, and I frequently, because I like to spread things out when I'm studying and on my desk often isn't big enough, I'll have books spread out on my desk and what doesn't fit on the desk will, will, will end up on the floor. Well, in this particular instance, I had a, a brother in Christ in my office from Pakistan and he just happened to come into my office when one of the books that was on the, the floor was a particular copy of the New Testament that had both Greek and then English um, uh, along with it. So my Bible, at least one copy of my Bible, was on the floor. And he was offended, offended, because in his culture, the Bible is treated with such respect, it would never end up on the floor where the feet go, right? That had never crossed my mind. There are, uh, across cultural lines, there are differences amongst Christians, and we're going to have to learn how. How can we, how can we have unity and harmony across those cultural lines across maybe even those uh, in a certain culture? How can we have unity across lines, say, of age? Like certain generations have certain assumptions and expectations, and then a different generation has different assumptions and expectations, and how are we going to have unity without insisting on uniformity, and at the same time, not giving up the gospel and conviction? That's what Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13 is all about. And so we have, to, we have to read this text and pray through this text and look at our situation, be willing to hear Romans 14, 1 through 15, 13, calling us to welcome each other, to welcome each other, and to welcome each other not just from a distance, but in concrete, practical ways so that we can eat together and we can love each other and we can listen to each other and we can respect each other, and we can value each other, and we can appreciate and affirm each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of that reminds us that Jesus didn't come so that we could merely have a personal relationship with God. He didn't come so we could enjoy sweet thoughts of a blissful afterlife in heaven. He came to form a people a people, not a person, a people for his name, a God-glorifying community made up of people from a whole range of social and cultural and ethnic backgrounds that are different from each other and through whom he could flesh out his character and through whom he could reflect his truth, grace, mercy, and wisdom back into the world. And we are that people. And so learning to love one another and live with one another and appreciate one another is going to be key to fulfilling the whole reason Jesus came and died.